Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this gathering today. We pray for the Holy Spirit. Lord, you know the topic, and the topic is you. You and your law, which is a reflection of your character, and also your power and what you can do for us, what you have done for us. And we pray, please, Father, in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus, that you will bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, God is good. Yesterday was part one. And just to quickly summarize, uh, I talked about the importance of the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, this topic is about as big as it gets. I know some people have hobby horses, you know, they pick one topic or somebody else has one subject. And generally, that's not a good thing. But if your one topic is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then you're fine, uh, as long as it's biblical. And that's what the Lord wants, us to really focus on Jesus. Uh, we also talked about the two pillars of the message of the righteousness of Christ, which is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus combined. I shared that yesterday. Uh, we also talked about how the devil's making war on this message. He's been doing this for a long, long time. And how we are also in a battle, a current battle, between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell over this very subject and over the people of God. I also showed you yesterday, let's see, we don't have a, my uh, monitor is not on in front of me. I'm hoping somebody can turn that on. But we also talked about the Ten Commandments and the importance of God's law. And I showed you these yesterday, that these are solid tables of stone that I have been carrying around with me, <clears throat> shipping around with me to different cities. And I tell you, the, the uh, law of God is so impressive. There is no other law that has ever been written in the history of humanity, in the history of the universe, that was written directly with the finger of God on tables of stone. And this is it. If you can imagine Moses coming off the mountain uh, down from Mount Sinai holding these tables and his face was glowing. If we would have seen that with our own eyes, I think our respect for God's law would be raised dramatically, don't you think? I have been deeply impressed with the holiness of God's commandments for many, many years. I have studied each one of them very carefully. In Romans chapter 2, let's start with verse 26. I just want to show you a number of verses in the Bible concerning righteousness, concerning the righteousness of God's law. There's a verse on the screen, actually a number of verses, that use the expression, the law of righteousness. Romans chapter 2, verse 26, the Bible says, therefore, if the uncircumcision referring to the Gentiles, keep the righteousness of the law. Shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? So here's one text where God refers in his word to the righteousness of the law. If you look at chapter 8, verse 4, Romans 8, 4 also refers to the righteousness of the law. And then Romans 9, verse 31, says, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. And then Paul asks the question, why not? And the answer is given that uh, Israel did not seek that righteousness by faith. So when it comes to the, the topic of righteousness by faith, my conviction is, from all my study, that we need to define our terms if we don't define our terms, we're going to get confused. And there's a lot of confusion in this world this morning. And all around the world, people are very, very confused. Here is a statement that is very clear from the little book, Steps to Christ, page 61. Steps to Christ, page 61. This is what it says. Righteousness is defined, see that, by the standard of God's holy law as expressed in the ten precepts 
given on Mount Sinai. Now, that's a pretty clear statement, wouldn't you agree? Uh, like I said, in order for us to understand righteousness by faith, we have to know what righteousness is. And the reason why God calls his law a righteous law or the law of righteousness is because the law defines in very simple terms what is right and what is wrong. And we need to know that these days. We need to know what's right and what's wrong. Uh, you know, we need to know our, our right hand from our left. We need to know what sin is. And if we don't understand God's commandments, we're going we're gonna to drift. We're going to drift away from Bible truth. Now, yesterday I also gave you a quick little summary of a number of points concerning the law of God. Uh, number one, we talked about yesterday that the Ten Commandments, again, define righteousness what is right and what is wrong. The Ten Commandments also are a standard that God uses in the judgment, in the day of judgment. And we are living in the hour of God's judgment. And that standard uh, is, is a test of character, a test of our characters. Number three, the Ten Commandments are a transcript of the character of God, of His character of love. God is a God of love. His law is a law of love. and his outline in his commandments are a reflection of his character of love. Number four, the Ten Commandments are also a prescription for happiness. If we want to be happy, if we want to avoid guilt, if we, if we want to have peace of mind when we live our lives and when we go to bed at night, uh, we need to be in harmony with God's, God's law. The Ten Commandments are also, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are a convictor of sin. They help us to know what sin is. And we looked at this also yesterday. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says that the law of God is a schoolmaster that is designed by heaven specifically to help us to feel our need for Jesus Christ. It is a schoolmaster, Paul says, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, here is a statement on the screen that has also really impressed me as we think about the final days, the final events, and what is going to happen right before the end of the world. This is from volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 19. It says that the Lord God of heaven will not send upon the world his judgments for disobedience and transgression until he has sent his watchmen to give the warning. And who are those watchmen? It's supposed to be us. Right. And then it goes on and says, he will not close up the period of probation until the message shall be more distinctly proclaimed. That has impressed me. We need to give a very clear message. And God's not going to wind things up until his message has free course and is given distinctly. And then it says that the law of God is to be magnified. God's law is to be lifted up higher and higher and higher in a generation, in an age that is doing everything else but lifting up God's law. And that law is to be magnified. Its claims must be presented in their true and sacred character that the people may be brought to decide for or against the truth. Does that statement impress you? It impresses me uh, that God's law is to be lifted up and it's to be brought very, very close to human hearts so that hearts see it. They see each of the commandments. The claims are presented in their true and sacred character. Uh, this is not a minor topic and this is not a man-made topic. This is a topic from God. And then it says, yet the work will be cut short in righteousness, which is a quote from the book of Romans. And then it says, and this is the, the really the culmination of all of this, it says the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Hallelujah. Uh, I, I want the third angel's message to close so we can go home. And this statement, and this is an inspired statement, 
I believe God gave us these words. And it tells us clearly that the law and the message of Christ's righteousness are to be combined in the final hours. Isn't that what that says? Very, very clear. This is the work, this is what closes the work of the third angel. Now turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. And let's look at the 19th verse. Romans chapter 3. And let me, uh, let me make a, a comment that I think is really important, and that is, during the final hours, I believe the Lord is going to continue to give His people instruction through the spirit of prophecy. I really believe that. But, I also want to make clear that when we give God's message to the world with a loud voice during the loud cry, it must be preached from the Bible. We have to find that message here in God's book. The purpose of the spirit of prophecy, or one of the major purposes, is to point us to the Bible so we can get the message in the Word and we can preach it from the, from the Scriptures. We need to be doing that. And so let's do that. Let's look at Romans chapter 3, verse 19, and Paul here talks about the law of God. Verse 19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, and the word under has to do with, with being under its authority. And as you keep reading, it's clear that the whole world is under the authority of God's law. It says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be what? Every mouth may be stopped. Now, it doesn't say every Jewish mouth. Some people think the law was just given for the Jews. But Paul says, that every mouth, which applies to Gentile mouths, Jewish mouths, uh, little boy, little girls, big people, adults, old men, old women, all of us, that every mouth may be stopped. And I told you yesterday, uh, I heard somewhere that the reason why God gave us two ears and one mouth is because the Lord wants us to listen twice as much as we talk. And we have a tendency, and I'm including myself, uh, to talk too much. And one of the one of the big errors of this little horn in Daniel chapter 7, which the Bible finally reveals as the Antichrist, is that it has a mouth speaking great things. And God doesn't want us to have a big mouth speaking great things. He wants us to listen, and He also wants us to listen to His law. And the Scripture is clear that in the light of the law, every mouth is to be stopped, and all of the world may become, and what's that, what's that next word? Okay, my Bible in the King James says that all the world may become guilty before God. That's right. Uh, every year, the President of the United States gives a State of the Union address. You probably listened to quite a few of them. And we need to give a State of the World address. And the Bible gives us the State of the World. And in the light of God's law, what is the State of the World? The Scripture says, that every mouth may be stopped and all of the world may become guilty before God. Now, this is not a popular truth, but it's there in the Bible. Uh, the Bible, as we are about to see shortly, is full of good news. Hallelujah. But there is also some bad news in the Word of God. Uh, and the bad news is that we are sinners and that the world is guilty before God. If you, if you try to tell a sinner, if you walk up to him and say, hey, I've got good news for you. Jesus died on the cross for all your sins. The average sinner will listen to that and say, so what? So what? I remember when I was 19 years old, I was walking on Hollywood Boulevard uh, just, to, just as a teenager. I had never read the Bible in my life. I didn't really know anything about Jesus. And this girl walked up to me with the Bible. And she, uh, she grabbed my sleeve. She was about 14 years old. This was one of the early seeds that was planted in my head that eventually led me to Jesus. And she, uh, she grabbed my sleeve and she said, excuse me, excuse me. And I remember turning around and looking at this girl. She was probably 14 years old. She was carrying a Bible. And she looked at me and this is what she said. She said, sir, sir, are you saved? Are you saved? And I looked at her and I still remember the words that popped out of my mouth. 
I said, I didn't even know that I was lost. That's what I said. I didn't even know that I was lost. And then I walked away. But that little seed continued to grow in my mind. But I was a sinner and I didn't know it. I was guilty and I didn't know it. If she would have just told me the good news, I would have had no clue what that good news meant. In order for the good news to be really good, we have to realize our condition as sinners. If we don't realize that, then mercy and grace and salvation and forgiveness means nothing. It means nothing. And I have learned from the Bible, as this verse says, that the condition of the world is guilty before God. Now, I don't have time to really do this as I'd like to do, but I would encourage all of you to carefully read Exodus chapter 20, to get on your knees, to pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind and to enlighten your heart, to search your heart, and to read the Ten Commandments one by one. Uh, I've done this many, many times. And if you do, the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart that the first commandment says that God is to be number one in your life. He is to be, the scripture says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we have a lot of different gods these days, and we need to search our hearts and pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to see that God doesn't want any other gods, only him, number one inside of us. Number two talks about idols, and there are many idols that we can have. We can not just bow down to a statue, but we can idolize things that we have. We can idolize people. We can idolize even our own opinions. Uh, there's all kinds of idols that we can develop. Number three talks about taking God's name in vain. You shall not do that, the Bible says. And God wants us to respect his name, honor him, because he's the great creator of heaven and earth. The fourth commandment talks about remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy and respecting our Creator and keeping that special day from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And I was impressed one day that when God said, honor your father and your mother, that that was my mom and my dad. And it doesn't say, honor your perfect father and your perfect mother, because they're not perfect, none of us are perfect. But still, God used our parents to get us here. And He wants us to respect and honor our parents. We certainly teach our children this commandment in our home. Number six says you should not kill, which also applies not just to the physical act of, of taking someone's life, but it also applies to our hearts and our attitudes. Uh, the Bible says that if we hate anyone, we're basically a murderer. God doesn't want any of us to have the spirit of hate in our heart toward anybody, even towards our enemies. Number seven is you shall not commit adultery. And this is a big commandment these days, and it's not just talking about faithfulness in the marriage relationship between husbands and wives, that we should wait until we get married, and when we are married, we should stick with our spouses, but it's also talking about the mind. Jesus said that if we look lustfully uh, at a woman, which I think also applies to women looking at men, we've committed adultery where? In our hearts. We can set up a bed in our hearts. And if there was ever a need for the seventh commandment, I tell you, it's today with all the garbage that's on the internet and all the temptations that we're all exposed to on all sides, on, on television and uh, magazines and posters and billboards, the list just goes on and on. God is preparing a people who are sexually pure. And this is a tall order, but God can do it. And all forms of sexual uh, immorality are sin. Number eight says you should not steal, which has to do with, you know, taking something that doesn't belong to us, and there's many ways that we can do that. Number nine is not bearing false witness, which means telling the truth about other people. When we talk about someone, we need to be very careful that the words that we say are true and that we're not saying, you know, a pack of lies. Uh, number ten says you shall not covet, and covet covetousness has to do with a condition of the heart. It goes beyond actions. It has to do with the heart and desiring something that somebody else has that doesn't belong to us and wanting it so much that uh, eventually it might lead us to commit another sin. And so the Ten Commandments reflect what's right and what's wrong. They reveal the character of a God of love. The Ten Commandments are summarized in the two great principles 
of loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And my conviction is, and the Bible says, that if these Ten Commandments are brought home to the hearts of men and women and children all around the world, then people will feel convicted of their sins, and they, are, they will realize that they are guilty before God. Now let's go back to our Bibles. Verse 20 says, therefore, in the light of verse 19, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Now what this means is that once we're in a condition of guilt before God, there is no amount of effort or obedience, even obedience to the law, that is going to justify us before God. And to be justified simply means to be in a condition where we are no longer guilty before Him. And once we're guilty, no amount of being good or trying to do the best that we can, as important as that may be, is going to remove one particle of the guilt that we already have. Uh, a simple way to illustrate this is imagine if a man committed a, a crime, a murder. He actually pulled the trigger and shot someone. The person died. Uh, he was arrested and he was thrown in jail. And let's say he was in jail for six months. And at the end of those six months, this man is brought out of prison and he's brought into the courtroom and he's standing before the judge. And the judge looks at him and says, did you commit that crime? Did you pull the trigger? Did you do it? And that man looks at the judge and he says, Your Honor, he said, he said, I did it. Yes, I did. I killed that man. And then the judge looks at him like as if he has anything else to say. And then the man looks at him and he says, But, but, Your Honor. And uh, many times the word but is the big difference between the sheep and the goats. If you know what I mean. Goats, but and sheep submit, at least they're supposed to. So anyway, this guy says, he says, but your honor, he says, I have been sitting in my cell for the last six months and I've been very, very good. I haven't, I haven't killed anyone, I've, uh, I've helped to clean up my cell, I've been so good that the cafeteria service has, has asked me to help wash the dishes, they see me as a, just a model prisoner. Your Honor, I haven't killed anybody. I've been keeping the law for six months. Won't you justify me now? And what is a good judge going to say? He's going to put the gavel down and he's going to say, it doesn't matter that you've been good for six months. I mean, it's a good thing, but it doesn't matter when it comes to the law. When it comes to the law, you are still guilty because you broke it and no amount of subsequent obedience can remove a particle of guilt. Are you with me? Is this making sense? And that's what Paul's saying. In the light of our condition before God, he says, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified or cleared in his sight. And the most important thing that we need to know today is what is our relationship with him in his sight. It's not necessarily what man has to say. It's not what people think, it's what God thinks. That's what's most important, his sight. And then it says, and then Paul says at the end of verse 20, he says, by the law is the knowledge of what? Right, and here's the verse right there. By the law is the knowledge of sin. God uses his law to convict sinners of sin. And, you know, we may flatter ourselves that we're not sinners, but the reality is we are, and sin is still sin. Have you heard the expression that God is looking for men who are willing to call sin by its right name? Have you heard that expression? And we need to be doing that. We need to call sin by its right name. If you ask the average evangelical Christian, what is sin? The chances are they really won't know. Uh, a lot of them will say, sin is missing the mark. And that's true, but that's still a little bit vague. We need to know what that mark is. What is that mark? 
And the mark is the law of God. And the law of God tells us clearly exactly what sin is, and it shows us our condition. The Bible says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now let me ask you, are you ready for some good news? If we bypass the truth about sin, again, we're not going to appreciate the good news of the gospel. Mercy means nothing without justice. Grace means nothing without law. We need to understand the relationship between them both. As uh, we've been told, the law of God is to be lifted up and, the, and its sacred character is to be brought to bear upon the mind and upon the heart. Now, let's go on to the next verse. Verse 21. And I like the fact that in verse 19, Paul starts out by saying, now, here's the condition of the world. And then in verse 20 says, 21, he says, but now, now the righteousness of God without the law is being manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul says, now somebody's righteousness is being, is being manifested. And as you keep reading, you'll discover that that righteousness of God is not a righteousness that comes from us. It's not a righteousness that comes from our efforts of trying to be good. It is a righteousness that comes down from above, down from heaven. It is the righteousness of God, and it is, it is manifested, it says, without the law. And that means it's apart from the law. It's separate from the law. But it is witnessed by the law and the prophets, which means that it's the same righteousness that the law wants to see, but it's coming from somewhere else. It's not coming from the law. It's coming, as we'll see, it's coming from Jesus. Verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is, as we know, unmerited favor. It means God is willing to do something for us he loves us even though we're sinners, even though we don't deserve it, even though we're not good, we haven't been good, uh, we've broken his law. The God of the Bible, the God who gave us that law, is a God of love and compassion and mercy, and he wants us to be saved. Verse 25 says, it's talking about Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare, and what does Paul say? that God wants to declare. It says his righteousness, again it's pointing upward, his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance or the mercy of God. Verse 26 says to declare I say at this time. And what does Paul say needs to be declared at this time? It says his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now remember I mentioned that we need to be able to preach this message from the Bible. Now let me ask you, is the message of the righteousness of Christ in Romans chapter 3? You probably can't see this unless you have really, really super good eyes, but in verse 21 it mentions the righteousness of God, I put a little circle there. Verse 22, the righteousness of God, put another circle there. Verse 25, His righteousness, put another circle there. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, verse 26. So four times in verses 21 to 26, Paul lifts up as the solution to the problem of sin, he lifts up the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He does it four times, and he does it in relationship to the law, which is what we've been studying, which we studied yesterday, that the law of God combined with the message of Christ's righteousness there is special power, the Bible says, in this message. And Paul is very clear that these truths are put together. Now, let's go deeper. If righteousness is defined by God's commandments, and if the Bible says that Jesus Christ has become our righteousness, then what does that mean? Let's make it really practical. 
so we're not confused. What does this mean? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, through a woman named Mary, a little tiny baby was born with little hands and little eyes and little feet. And I, you know, I'm looking forward to, to going to heaven and talking to Mary and asking her to tell me what it was like when she gave birth to a little baby that was God's own son, the son of God. What was that like? Well, we could spend an hour talking about the life of Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, that when Jesus was 12 years old, he was subject to Joseph and Mary. Now, which commandment was he keeping when he did that? If you remember, number five, right, that says, honor your father and mother. And Jesus honored Joseph he honored Mary, he kept the fifth commandment, and when he did that, he actually wove a stitch in a robe, in a white robe of righteousness for you and for me. When he began his public ministry in Luke chapter 4 verse 16, the Bible says that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as his custom was, and he stood up to read. Jesus kept the seventh-day Sabbath. He kept it all throughout his life. And every Sabbath he kept, because he loved his father, he wove another stitch in a robe of righteousness for you and for me. Every time Jesus said, I tell you the truth, which he did so many times during his ministry, he was keeping the ninth commandment and he was weaving another stitch in a robe of righteousness for you and for me. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, Jesus stood in the wilderness in front of the devil. And the devil looked at him and, Jesus, and the devil said, actually he took him to a high mountain and the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil looked at Jesus and said, I will give you all these kingdoms if you will just do one thing, if you will just bow down and worship me. Imagine. What a scallywag asking Jesus Christ to get on his knees and worship him. And what did Jesus say? I asked my son, Seth, once I said, Seth, what did Jesus say when the devil tempted him? And Seth said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I was thrilled by that. And anyway, in that particular situation, when Satan said, bow down and worship me, Jesus looked at the devil and he said, get behind me, Satan. He said, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Hallelujah. Now, which commandment was Jesus keeping right there? He was keeping commandment number one. He put his father first and he said, Satan, get out of here. Get out of here. And when Jesus put his father first and he did it every day of his life, he continued to weave stitches in a robe, in a white robe of righteousness for you and for me. Jesus did this all throughout his life. The book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 19, says Jesus is offering us a white garment, white robes. Revelation 7 verse 14 says God is going to have a people when we finally get up there and we're all going to be clothed in white robes. Jesus in his life made choice after choice after choice to love his father and to love his neighbor as himself and he did it in human flesh. Jesus became a man. He took on our flesh our fallen, sinful, tempted flesh. And in that flesh, the same flesh that you have and the same flesh that I have, Jesus resisted temptation after temptation after temptation. There's a song that I like, and I don't remember all the words, but it talked about Jesus after the Garden of Gethsemane carrying a cross and how he was heading toward that hill, toward that hill. 
And it says, as he struggled up that hill, without a thought of turning back, he continued on all the way to the cross. And then the song says, why did he do it? Why did he die? Why did he die? And then the answer to the song is, it says he died for freedom. He died for love. There's a song, uh, the Via Dolorosa, that talks about the way of suffering that Jesus endured as he meandered through the streets of Jerusalem toward that, toward that faithful spot where he would be separated from his father. Down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, came the Lamb, the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and for me. The song says the, the blood that would cleanse the souls of all men made its way through the heart of Jerusalem. Down the Via Dolorosa, all the way, all the way to Calvary. Words are inadequate to describe the love and the mercy and the agony and the suffering of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Not only during those 33 years of living in humanity through the power of God did he overcome sin after sin after sin after sin where we've yielded, he conquered. Not only did he do that and developed a perfect spotless white robe but he also, at the end of his life, he took to himself, he took into his mind, he took into his heart, he took into his soul every single sin that every single one of us has ever committed throughout our whole lives. And it's not just us. It's people from the days of Adam all throughout history, all the way to the end of time. Every murder, all adultery, all pride, all selfishness, all lust, all idolatry, all pornography, all child abuse, every single sin that's ever plagued this planet and plagued human hearts, all of these sins were transferred to Jesus in Gethsemane and on the cross and he paid the full price for sin. And I tell you, that is good news. I mean, that is, that is the news of all news. Now here's a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy in Gospel Workers, page 61. It says, the thought that the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, this is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, what will happen to his power? His power will be broken. Let's say that you left this convention and you went home and you went to your bank and you found out that, that an anonymous friend had decided to deposit $100 million in your bank account as a gift tax-free. Any of you, uh, you know, have any financial struggles these days? Let's say that you went home and you went to your bank and you found this out. And you, when you left the bank, would you have a good day? Would it raise your spirits? to know that you had that kind of money given to you as a free gift. Well, I tell you, there's something much more important than money. And that something is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And God is offering to give us that righteousness as a free gift without any merit on our part. We don't deserve it. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to achieve it. It is offered to us as a gift. And that gift has power, tremendous, tremendous power. A couple more texts, I can see my time is going. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans 5, verse 1. The Bible says, therefore being justified, which means set right with God, we're clear, we're innocent, there's no guilt. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are justified not by our works, but by our faith in Jesus. That it is a free, it is a free gift. Now, I want to also make it very clear. Imagine a little boy in a kitchen with his hand in the cookie jar, holding on to the cookies that mother said don't eat until dinner. And the mother walks in 
and the little boy's got his hand in the jar and he's caught red-handed. He needs to take his hand, first of all, I mean, he's already in trouble, but he needs to take his hand out of the jar. And in order for him to take his hand out of the jar, what does he have to do with the cookies? He's got to let go. He's got to let go of those cookies. And it's the same way with us. You know, we have our hand in the cookie jar of sin. And in order for us to take that hand, these hands, and hold on by faith in Jesus and trust Him as our Savior to receive His righteousness, we have to let go of sin. We have to make a choice. And why wouldn't we let go of sin? If we see what Jesus did for us and how awful sin is and what it has done, not only to humanity, but to God Himself. You look at the cross and that's the result of sin. We need to let go of it. And we need to grab by faith Jesus Christ as our righteousness. Here's another quote from Steps to Christ, page 62. It says, if you give yourself to him, we've got to surrender our whole lives to Jesus, and why wouldn't we? I mean, look at what he did for you. He did everything for you. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then, sinful as your life may have been, for his sake, you are accounted righteous. Hallelujah. God's char Christ's character stands in the place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. Now, you know, I, I hope that this moves you because I tell you, it moves me. I've looked at all these commandments. I've gone through them one by one. I know my own heart. I know my own past. I know my life. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm going to stand before God. I know I'm standing before him right now. And I know that I have only one hope, and my hope is not me, it's Him. My hope is Jesus. My hope is my Savior. Christ, He is my righteousness, and He's your righteousness. And I have given myself to Him. I'm not holding anything back. Why do I want to hold anything back? I want my Lord. I want my Savior. He's done everything for me. And I have the assurance, and so do you, that when you give your life to him, surrendering your life to him, and trusting in him, not in you, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be given to you as a free gift, and you can stand before God just as if you had never sinned. Now, if that doesn't move you, you know, I don't know what will move you. Now, go down to verse 5. Go down to verse 5. Verse 5 says, Hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. You see that? The love of God is shed abroad. It's poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, if you put these pieces together, Romans 5 verse 1 talks about justification through faith in Jesus, that we can stand before God as if we never sinned. And then verse 5 says the Holy Spirit comes with power upon a person's heart. That's what verse 5 says. And as I put verse 1 and verse 5 together, it's very clear to me that the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes the doorway for the power of the Holy Spirit to come to the people of God. That's what it says. And that's what's, that's what's happened to me. That the Holy Spirit, He's in my life. I know He is. I can sense his presence day by day, not all the time. Sometimes I have dark days, but I trust Jesus. I'm experiencing his power. I'm learning more about the power of God, and I know that that power comes through my faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something else about that power, that when the power of the Holy Spirit bringing the love of God into your heart comes into your life and you stand up before God, you get off your knees, and you know that that the white robe of Jesus' righteousness is given to you as a free gift and you're clothed with that righteousness and that you can now stand before God with a clean conscience. You can go to bed at night and not, uh, you know, toss and turn, am I guilty before God? You can go to bed at night and have a good night's sleep. That the love of Jesus that comes into your heart gives you power. It, it, gives, you, it gives you power. Romans chapter 8 verse 4 tells us the result of that power, what that power will do. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled where? In us. That's right. It was fulfilled in Jesus first, but then it is fulfilled in us as well. 
the more we trust not in ourselves but in Jesus outside of ourselves, the more we trust in Him, the more power we'll have in here. The more we trust in Jesus up there, the more power we'll have in here. Should I say that again? The more we trust in Jesus up there, the more power we'll have in here. And when the power of God is in our lives through the Holy Spirit, it says that the law, the righteousness of the law, will be fulfilled in us who walk, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When Jesus Christ was here on earth, he conquered sin in the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the good news from the Bible is that Jesus Christ has the power to do the same thing in you and in me. He forgives our sins, clothes us with his white robe, lifts us up so we stand before God as if we never sinned, comes into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us the strength to say no to sin. He gives us the strength to put God first, no idols. We don't want to take his name in vain. We keep the Sabbath. We honor our parents. We don't murder. We don't hate. We don't commit adultery. We avoid all sexual sin. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't covet. We put our Father first, our Savior first, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's God's plan for his people. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ, his righteousness, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the devil looks at the final generation and looks into their eyes and sees, uh, and I'll share this with you tomorrow, that we're told that in the final hours, God is going to have a people who are impregnable to the assaults of Satan. Satan comes to them and finds nothing in them that he can grab a hold of and lead them into sin. They, they're standing before the God of the universe and before the world, pure and clean and godly and obedient and loving and humble and true. And when the devil looks at them, we're told in the spirit of prophecy that he sees an incomprehensible mystery. He cannot fathom how God can develop a people who are really commandment keepers. But God can do it. Can he do it in your life? Can he do it in my life? And when the devil looks in the eyes of those people, he's going to see his ancient enemy. He's going to see Jesus Christ again in human flesh. And he's going to be just stumped. It's an absolute mystery to him. He cannot fathom that that is going to happen. But it is. Revelation 14 verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. They do it and the faith of Jesus. They do it through Jesus Christ, their faith in him, their trust in his power. They do it through his righteousness, through the power of his word, through the Holy Spirit, through the love of God, through their loyalty to the truth. And I want to be among that people. How about you? That's our calling as Seventh-day Adventists. I'll close with a little story. When my son, Seth, was only three years old, we, were, we had just moved out of California to Washington State. We were living in a little place called Diamond Lake uh, in Washington, and we were out playing in the snow one winter. I was uh, pulling him around. He was sledding, and he saw this gigantic pile that the snow plows had piled up as they went through the roads to clear the snow. There was this huge pile of snow right on the side of the road. And my little uh, three-year-old walked over to that pile and he looked at me and he said, Daddy, he said, if I were to fall into that snow and go down and disappear, he said, you would just leave me, right? I was shocked that he said that. And I looked at him, and I don't know why he said that, but I said, uh, Seth, no way. He said, I wouldn't leave you. I said, I, I dig you out. And this little uh, three-year-old looked at me, and he said, but Daddy, he said, what if you didn't have a shovel? How would you do it? And I looked at Seth without a moment's hesitation. Because I love my boy with my whole heart. I'd give, I'd give everything for my son, for my daughter, for my wife. And I looked at Seth and I said, Seth, I said, even if I didn't have a shovel, I said, I would, I would dig you out with my hands, with my bare hands. I'd go down there and I'd grab you and I'd get you out. 
There's no way I'm going to leave you dying in the snow. And I want to tell you, before we pray, that that is what Jesus Christ did for you. He came down to this dark world. He became a human, just like you and just like me in many ways, in every way except one way, one major way, and that is he never sinned. And he lived a life for you. He overcame temptation for you. He conquered the devil for you. He resisted sin for you. He kept the commandments of God for you. And at the end of that life, in Gethsemane and on the cross, he took your sins and he took my sins into his mind and into his heart. And he suffered an agonizing death that we'll never fully understand. And he did it for you and for me. And he rose from the dead. Hallelujah. And he's offering you a pure white robe to cover all your sins. And he's offering you his power, the power of the Holy Spirit to come into your heart, to change your life, and to give you strength day by day, step by step. And if you fall, get up. If you fall, get up. But go on forward, trusting in Jesus, trusting in his righteousness. Let him do that work in your life so he can prepare you to be one of those people who stand before God at the end of time as if they never sinned and who have the power of Jesus in their lives, keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Father, I've tried the best that I can this morning to share your word the message of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It's not mine, it's yours, Lord. And Jesus, I, I again give you my life. I again take my hand out of that cookie jar. I don't want any sin in my life at all. I give it all to you. I trust you, Jesus, as my Savior. I trust your forgiveness and your power. Please, Lord, come into all of our lives. Forgive us all. Come into our hearts Give us the strength to stand up for God, to call sin by its right name, to do what's right, to forsake what's wrong, and to be among that final people in these last days who love you and who love others and who do what's right, though the heavens fall. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.